Good morning. Welcome to Eastern Shore Baptist Church's podcast. My name is Stuart Davidson. I'm so thrilled that you have decided to tune in this week. I certainly hope that today's message will be both encouraging to you, but also I pray that it will be convicting. You can find out more about our church by visiting www.myesbc.net. God bless you and look forward to seeing you soon at church. Good morning, if you will. You can open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 20. Now, before, don't, don't put that picture up yet, Miss Barb. I'll, I'll tell you when to put that picture up. If, no, you can leave that picture up, but don't put the other picture up. A few years ago, I heard a, a story about a Missouri man who spent, get this, 17 years behind bars. 17 years behind bars for a robbery an armed robbery that he did not commit. Can you imagine spending 17 years in jail for a, for, for a crime you didn't commit? Finally, after that long 17 years had gone by, this man had all of his charges dropped and he was immediately released. All charges were dropped. He was found innocent and he was released back into public. The man who was wrongly accused, his name is Richard Jones. The man who actually committed the armed robbery, the man who actually committed the crime, was also named Richard Jones. Although the guy that actually committed the crime, he went by Ricky. Both men were 41 years old. Both men shared the exact same birthday. Both men lived just a matter of blocks apart and yet had never met. They even had, so you're probably wondering, well, how in the world did they convict Richard Jones for a crime that Richard Jones, Ricky Jones, actually did? Well, they actually had film footage of Richard Jones committing the crime, the the bad Richard Jones, Ricky Jones. And so you're thinking to yourself, well, how did Ricky Jones, Richard Jones, the guilty Jones, how did he get off? Well, now you can show the picture. Do you have that picture? That's how. When the police looked at the film footage of the robbery, they thought they were witnessing Richard Jones commit the crime that actually Ricky Jones had committed. The man who is innocent is the man on the right. The man who is guilty, Ricky, is on the left. You could see even with film footage, they had a case of mistaken identity. Both men, oddly enough, were the exact same height. Both men were the exact same weight and looked nearly identical even though they were not related. Eventually, Ricky was jailed for another crime, a different crime, and he began to talk about his exploits behind bars and the other The other inmates heard the story and had known Richard Jones, the innocent man, and they began to rally around Richard Jones, and they eventually drew up papers, found lawyers, and eventually had him freed. Oddly enough, at the crime, there was no DNA, no fingerprints, or other physical evidence that linked the innocent Richard Jones to the crime, and prosecutors had used eyewitnesses to convict him. Now that is a case of horrible, mistaken identity, yet it shows the value of knowing the real identity of someone, doesn't it? Who is Richard 
Jones. Are you like me and do you struggle with identifying people? <laughs> I have to confess, I really struggle with identifying people. Have you ever had that moment in the gym where you walk in and, and that person walks up to you and you know immediately they know who you are? They know who you are. It, it happened to me just the other day. I, I was walking around, this person came up to me and, and she looks at me and she goes, Hey, Stuart! And I was like, hey, girl, <laughs> you, it's been a long time, you, love you. How's your family? We're great. How's your family? We kind of had that moment together. Do you ever have that thing where you recognize a face, but you can't remember the name? Oh, I know that person, I know that person, I know that person. Who is it, right? Or have you ever had that moment where you can remember the name, but you really don't even know who they look like? I've seen that name on paper, or I've seen that name come up in my phone, but I, I don't really have a, a recollection of, of who they are. We struggle sometimes with identity, don't we? And today... And Jesus is going to ask us to a, a very important question about his identity. Who do people say that I am? The disciples are going to tell him that the crowd thinks that this is a case of mistaken identity. They're going to give some names, but the crowd really doesn't know who Jesus is. Then Jesus is going to make the question much more personal. Who do you say that I am? It's not so much what the crowds think, but I want to know what you think about about me. Who do you say that I am? You see, I believe that these questions, the questions that Jesus is asking, are really important. What do others think about my identity? And what do you think about my identity are very good question. questions. Answer for me this morning this statement right here. What you say about Jesus says a lot about you. What you say about Jesus says a lot about you. If Jesus was just a good fella, if he was just a good dude, walking, uh, doing right by folks, then guess what? We don't really have to tailor our standards of morality to a good guy. Well, if Jesus is a teacher, and that's all Jesus is, I mean, we really don't have to obey him if he's just a teacher. But... If he is God, if he is our creator, if he is the ultimate authority in the universe and us being a part of the universe means he's our ultimate authority as well, if he's all of those things, then we have to do and make some decisions that are very important. Are we going to submit to Jesus's lordship in our life as our maker and creator and Lord or are we going to go a different direction? So what you say about Jesus says a lot about you. It says a lot about me. So to give you the background here of Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 20, and this background is really important because in Luke's account, in Luke's gospel, there are some really huge things that are left out before verses 17 and 18. So if you read verse 17 and then you come to verse 18, there is this massive gap of information that we don't have 
But thankfully, in John's gospel, John fills in that gap for us. So Luke didn't tell us that after Jesus performed this great miracle of feeding 5,000, that the people around Jesus want to make Jesus their king by force. They want to militarily install Jesus as king. And so Jesus, knowing their intention, knowing their thoughts, knowing their hearts, he withdraws from the crowd because it was not his time, nor his desire to be some earthly king. Then the next time the 12 saw him, it was on a dark, strong, windy, blowing sea. And the sea had become rough, and they were battling with their oars with all of their might to get to the other side. And suddenly they saw a figure walking out on the water towards their boat. And you can imagine they were petrified. They were afraid. But when Jesus told them that it was him that was coming towards him, them, we know the rest of the story. It was Peter that gets out of the boat, has that experience out on the water with Jesus, and then Jesus gets in the boat. And as the Word of God tells us in John 6, the boat immediately arrived at the shore where the 12 were desperately trying to get to. And when they arrived on that shore, they had just been fed about him uh, and been found by Jesus. All these people had come to see Jesus because they had heard of all the great things that they had done. And so Jesus preaches this unbelievable sermon and that he tells people that he was the bread of life and how people must feed on him to have eternal life. So you can imagine Jesus feeds these people, gets on the sea, has that moment with Peter, gets to the other side. People come around uh, Jesus. And, and this is at the height of Jesus' popularity. Right now, in verses between the verse uh, of Luke's uh, 9, 17, and 18, he's at his height. And then Jesus comes back and says, oh, by the way, to be my follower, you have to feed on my flesh, you have to drink of my blood. And that was way too much for people to handle. You can imagine. I mean, they totally misunderstood what Jesus was trying to speak to them. And so this huge following of people, they all leave Jesus. And then Jesus looks to his disciples, right, and says, are you going to leave too? Are you going to leave too? From there, Jesus had some heated encounters with Jewish leaders, again, waning in popularity. And they had demanded a sign from Jesus to prove who he was, but Jesus refused and he walked away, not giving them what they wanted. He had the disciples get into a boat, head back across the Sea of Galilee toward the northeast, taking his disciples with him. And that's where we pick up. So you can imagine from verses 17 and 18, Luke leaves out a ton of information. And so now we've got this conversation in verses 18 through 20 of Luke 9. You can read along with me if you will. I'm reading from the ESV. It says this, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist? Some say Elijah. Others say maybe one of the prophets of old, maybe is risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. So Jesus' question reveals three really simple things. One, it reveals the crowd's confusion. 
it reveals the crowd's confusion. Some say, Jesus, that you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say that you are a resurrected prophet from old. With the new year upon us, many of us have made resolutions to do a lot of different things. Uh, you've, maybe you're like me, and maybe you've said, you know what, I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to lose some LBs. I'm going to try to get in a better form. And, and I've been, as I made that resolution, I've been doing some reading and studying online and in books about diet and nutrition. And to be honest with you, I'm a little confused by it all. It seems that what I thought was good for me is bad for me, and what was bad for me is now good for me. A few years ago, people said, you don't need to eat eggs. Don't eat eggs. Eggs are bad. Eggs are evil. Did you know eggs are evil? They're horrible for you. They're going to kill you one day. And now as I read, I, I, I hear that eggs are great for you and that we should eat more eggs. More eggs are good. And then a few years ago, as I, as I remember, people said, butter, butter's bad. Butter is terrible. Don't eat butter. Butter will kill you. And now they, they have, it was like you need to eat margarine instead of butter. And now they're saying, no, 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 margarine's bad. You need to eat butter, which I'm all about, by the way. That's the best news of my life. More butter. More butter. This is good. And then they said that chocolate was no good. Chocolate's bad. Don't eat chocolate. That was a terrible thing because I do like bluebell chocolate. And now, thank you. Hey, can I get an amen? All right. Uh, people are getting hungry. Well, and now they're saying, no, chocolate, chocolate's good. Chocolate in a good amount is a good thing. Chocolate can prevent heart attacks, if you will. A lot of confusion. People are confused about health and wellness, but you know what? People are also just as confused about Jesus. Even today, people have no idea. It's all over the map when people start talking about Jesus. And I began to wonder, why are people so confused about who Jesus is and what Jesus demands and what Jesus desires from our life? Well, to my best understanding I believe that it's a biblical literacy problem. As biblical literacy, as our knowledge of the Bible declines and experiential worship increases, people are less and less knowledgeable about what they're actually worshiping. The experience of worship takes precedent over the identity of worship. Does that make sense? The experience of worship takes precedent over the identity of worship. George Gallup, a famous pollster, says this, Americans revere, they revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. But by and large, they just don't read it. And because they don't read it, they become a nation of biblical illiterates. And I'll go one step further. Without biblical knowledge, you can't possess Jesus' knowledge. Without biblical knowledge, you can't know Jesus. Not really. Without Jesus' knowledge, we're left to our own flawed thinking when deciding who he really is and what he really desires. That, that's, that's what happens, by the way, when you go out in the world and you say, well, what does Jesus want? And you'll hear people say, well, I think Jesus just really wants me to be a really good person. I think Jesus wants me to go to church. I think Jesus wants me to go here. I think Jesus wants me to go here. Uh, but, but the reality is, is they don't really know because they don't read their Bibles, and because they don't read their Bibles, they don't really know Jesus. And because they don't really know Jesus, they're left to their own understanding of who they think or what they think Jesus actually wants for them. It's biblical illiteracy. Strangely, by the way, I, I just typed into Google, who is Jesus? 
Who is Jesus? And do you know that Wikipedia actually gave me one of the better answers of who Jesus is? Wikipedia gives me a better answer than what many Christians can give me right now as to who Jesus is. Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Listen to what Wikipedia says. I thought it was fairly profound. When, when I read what Wikipedia says, this is what it says. The Gospel of Matthew emphasizes that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's will as revealed in the Old Testament. And he is the Lord of the church. He is the son of David, a king, and the Messiah. Amen, Wikipedia. Holy cow. When asking any given person who Jesus is, you're going to have a lot of different answers. Some are going to say that he was a teacher. Others are going to say that he was a good man. Some might claim that he was a a charlatan performing fake miracles, that he was a rabbi, that he was a master, that he was a blasphemer. Really, who knows who this guy was, who is he, and why is he such a big deal? I mean, essentially, that's what Jesus is asking the disciples. Who do people say that I am? Who do they identify me with? And what do they think that I want? No other person has ever attracted such attention, devotion, criticism, adoration, and opposition as Jesus Christ. He's the focal point of theological discussions. Philosophers and historians have studied him. He lived in the flesh about 2,000 years ago in the small country of Israel, living in a small town of Israel. Yet for centuries, his birthday has divided the years between B.C. and A.D., You can look at your watch. Everybody look at your watch. Some of you have to like tap it to get it to come on nowadays. Look at your watch. You can look at your watch anytime, any time of the day, and millions of people will be studying his word around the globe. His ministry only lasted three brief years, yet his his message travels around the world by radio and television. He had no formal education, yet his life caused the founding of more colleges, seminaries, and university than anybody else that has ever lifted. It's multiplied thousands of schools, hospitals, orphanages that have been all built in the name of Jesus Christ. To explain him is impossible, to ignore him is disastrous, to refuse him is fatal. My sermon today is too limited to describe him. My human mind too small to comprehend him. My heart too small to contain all the love that the Lord Jesus has given to me. To know the answer of who is Jesus, we have to go to the divinely inspired word of God. Again, to know Jesus, you better know the Bible. If you go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, the apostle Paul gives us these words, who, though he was God, Jesus, did not demand and cling to his rights as God, but laid aside his mighty power and glory and taking up the disguise of a slave and becoming like a man. And he humbled himself even further, going so far as to actually to die a criminal's death on the cross. Yet it was because of this that God raised him up to the heights of heaven and gave him a name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Scripture is very clear on who Jesus is. What did Jesus claim about himself? Disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Let's look at what Jesus said about himself. 
Okay, it doesn't matter what I say about Jesus, but I I like to to try to educate us this morning on what did Jesus say about himself. If you go to the book of John, John is often called, by the way, the I Am book because numerous times in the book of John, Jesus uses that word of I Am. It takes us back to the Hebrew of Jehovah, which is I Am. I Am that I Am. And he uses those words over and over again in referring to himself, taking upon himself the name of God. Jesus claims equality with God in John chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Listen to what he says. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am also working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. That's why these guys hated him. Because over and over and over, Jesus claimed that he was equal to the Lord. Jesus even affirmed his deity to his followers in John chapter 14. Listen to what it says in verses 7 through 11 and verse 20. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. In verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Friends, while the world is confused as to who Jesus is, may it never be said of the church. May it be never be said of Eastern Shore Baptist Church that we are a bunch of Bible-believing people who never read the Bible and don't even know who he is. May when we come into this room and we begin to raise our hands in worship that we actually uh, don't just experience worship, but we identify the worship with who we're trying to worship. Jesus doesn't want us to be confused Jesus' question reveals not only the crowd's confusion, but also Roman numeral two. It also reveals the disciples' comments. The disciples open up their hearts and they open up their minds and they share with Jesus what the crowd say. It seems, by the way, that everybody has an opinion, doesn't it? Have you noticed that? We live in a world where everybody has an opinion. Everybody has an opinion, including me. You don't have to go far. You can pick up your smartphone. You can open an app. You can check your email. And everywhere you look, there are opinions. Opinions everywhere. The question is, how informed are the opinions that you give credence to? Opinions. I know that's hard to believe, but as a pastor, this is going to blow y'all's mind. I hope you're sitting down. But as a pastor, I get a lot of opinions. I get a lot of opinions. David, can I pick on you for just a second? Is that all right? So I'm up here. We're talking. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. Glad you're here, right? Everybody's welcoming, talking. And so David comes up. And I love David. David, <laughs> David's just picking on me. He comes up and he goes, Preacher, I'll be honest with you. I don't, I don't know about that bow tie preacher. <laughs> I 
<laughs> and I just laugh, you know, because David's not manly enough to wear a bow tie. It's okay. <laughs> so what's, what's really funny is, so, so David has his opinion, and then Will comes up, and we all love Will. Will is a bow tie guy, man. He loves him. And I said, Hank, stay right here, David. I said, watch this. And so Will comes up because he's going to read scripture. I said, hey, Will, what do you think of my bow tie? And he goes, oh, Stuart, I love it. It's just great. Everybody's got an opinion. I get all kinds of opinion. Preacher, the seats are too hard. Preacher, the seats are too, uh, are too, too, too cushy. I get opinions all the time. Preacher, it's too hot. Uh, preacher, it's too cold. Uh, preacher, I don't like the paint color on the wall. Uh, preacher, I don't like some of the lights. Uh, I don't like some of the music. I like some of the music. I, you know, par for the course. It's all good, okay? I'm here for everybody's opinion, all right? But, but we, we have lots of opinions. I uh, did some reading the other day. I saw an email. Somebody sent me an email from, from children sharing their opinions with their pastor, and I thought they were hilarious. I thought they were hilarious. So I thought I'd share them with you. This is from Stephen, age eight. Dear pastor, I'd like to go to heaven someday because I know my brother won't be there. <laughs> That's pretty good. This is from Arnold, age seven. Dear pastor, I know God loves everybody, but he never met my sister. This is from uh, Lorraine, age nine. Dear pastor, I think a lot more people would come to your church if you moved it to Disneyland. Now, that is a fact. <laughs> that is a fact. This is from Alexander, age 10. Dear pastor, please, uh, please say a prayer for our Little League team. We need God's help or a new pitcher. <laughs> Carla, age 10. Dear pastor, are there any devils on earth? I think there may be one in my class. Ralph, age 11, dear pastor, <laughs> I've actually had somebody say this to me before. Uh, Ralph, age 11, dear pastor, I liked your sermon on Sunday, especially when it was over. <laughs> well, Jesus asked, and the disciples shared the opinion of the crowd. The crowds felt that either Jesus was the second coming of Elijah or John the Baptist. Oddly enough, I always thought this was weird that people thought that Jesus was John the Baptist when they were actually contemporaries of one another. They were in the presence of one another. John the Baptist baptized Jesus, and then John the Baptist died. So I don't know how Jesus could be the second coming of somebody that had already come and they had already lived together. But anyway, they thought that maybe Jesus was John the Baptist, a New Testament character. They thought that maybe Jesus was Elijah. There were some comparisons there that were very interesting, right? Jesus was this powerful speaker, a communicator, the same for Elijah, all right? And so he was an Old Testament character, or maybe he was one of the prophets. Now, what is really telling in what the crowds say about Jesus is really, really interesting. What they were really wanting Jesus to be is seen in these characters, the prophets, Elijah, John the Baptist. Their response reminds me of an old song uh, by a lady named Bonnie Tyler. Remember Bonnie Tyler? I, don't, I didn't know who it was. I just remember the song. And you'll remember, you'll remember these lyrics. I'm going to read the lyrics to you. Where have all the good men gone? And where are all the gods? 
Where is the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? Late at night I toss and turn and I dream of what I need. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero to the end of the night. He's got to be strong. He's got to be fast. And he's got to be fresh for the fight. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero to the morning light. He's got to be sure and it's got to be soon, and it's got to be larger than life. Let me tell you, friends, what the, what the disciples and what these people were hoping for was exactly what Bonnie Tyler described. They were looking for a hero. They were looking for someone to come and save them. They were looking for a rescuer. They were looking for someone to come into their world and turn it upside down and take control away from the Romans They wanted Jesus Christ to be their leader, their king, their authority. But it was all done on earth. All done on earth. And that's not what Jesus was here to do. The people had set their sights way too low when they referred to Jesus as John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets. They thought that no one could be bigger and better than Elijah. They thought that no one could be wiser than John the Baptist or one of the prophets. They didn't know that Jesus was the hero they were really looking for. So here's the application in this point for us today. If Jesus was the hero then, and he was, then Jesus is also the hero now, and is. Many came after Jesus and never measured up. Some tried to get the ball rolling before Jesus, and they failed too. Jesus stands alone and no one measures up to him. There's no politician or party that will impact your life the way that Jesus can. No, nobody. There's no athletic figure that has ever lived that will ever measure up to Jesus' exploits of strength. There's no philosopher who has a deeper understanding of humanity than Jesus. No other person has saved more lives, changed more outcomes, impacted more people than Jesus Christ. 2,000 years later, people still regard him as the central figure of history. The Jews deny him, the Muslims minimize him, the world is confounded by him, but here's the point, they're all still talking about him. Can we say that for our lives, that we need anything else but him? Chances are in the next 2,000 years, no one is going to remember my name. Over the next 2,000 years, sadly, no one's ever going to remember Stuart Davidson. Now that's sad to hear. It's hard for me to, to, to come to grips with, but it's true. But I tell you, whose name will still be talked about if we make it another 2,000 years? It's not gonna be Stuart, but it will be Jesus. People are still going to be talking about Jesus. I promise you. So who's your hero? In many cases, in many cases, Stuart's his own hero. But you know what? If Stuart is the hero of his life, then Stuart has set his sights way too low. Because Jesus is the hero. The crowd's got it wrong. But the disciples are about to get it right. In Revelation chapter 22 Verse 13, look at what uh, the, the John, the apostle, says of, of Jesus. He says, I am the Omega, uh, excuse me, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Ain't nobody bigger than Jesus. 
So the crowd's confusion, the disciples' comments, we also have last Peter's confession in verse 20. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And suddenly, without warning, Peter pipes up in perhaps the most powerful yet simple confession in the Bible. He tells Jesus and everybody else that was listening that Jesus is the Christ of God. Now that's very obvious for us today because we've heard this story over and over and over again and we've kind of come to the grips. We know what to say. We say, oh yes, Jesus clearly is God. But this was not a thought that was being uttered at that time. I would say that what, what, what Peter does here is he drops like a nuclear bomb on the religious circles of the day by saying that Jesus is the Christ God. The Greek word, by the way, for what Peter is talking about is Christos Theos. Peter said that Jesus, in this one moment, if you go to the Greek, he says that Jesus is the anointed one the Messiah, the King of Israel. Peter is, in calling Jesus the Christ, he is telling that there is no one else that is a higher authority than Jesus. Peter's claim that Jesus is the Christ was akin to blasphemy and made him, by the way, worthy of one day being a a fugitive. Peter spoke from his heart. Peter confessed And his confessional was the most personal of all the disciples. You see, what the crowds think of Jesus is really inconsequential to Jesus. Jesus wants to know who we, you, me, who we think of him. It's a personal understanding. I can imagine, I can almost put myself in that situation with the disciples and Peter. And I can imagine when when Peter said, you are Christos Theos, I, I can imagine the disciples with their jaws just hanging slack-jawed. Like, I can't believe Peter just said that. Are you kidding me right now? You see, the crowds said one thing. Peter said another. Jesus wants us to know who we think he is. Peter's confession was powerful. I can imagine the disciples sat there. They were astounded by what Jesus said. I can see Simon the Zealot sitting there drinking his wine and then Peter claimed that Jesus is the Christ God and him spraying it out of his mouth. So this morning, the ultimate question for you is this, who do you say that Jesus is? And for that matter, when you come to that answer, where do you derive that answer from? Are you deriving that answer from a source that's trusted? Or are you deriving that answer from some media outlet or from news cycle or from what you may have heard from the crowd? Friend, the best way to know who Jesus is, the best way to know what Jesus wants, the best way to understand Jesus' character is to read the Bible. Read the Bible. Don't even take my word for it. Read the Bible. Become more biblically literate and you'll have a deeper understanding of who Jesus really is. You'll have to make up your own mind and decide. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, that the Word became a human being and full of grace and truth. He lived among us. We saw His glory, the glory with which He revealed as He received from the Father's only Son. My goodness, do you believe that this morning? Would you bow your head with me?